Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of the AfriCast. My name is Brendan Lotz and joining me as always is Clinton Matos. Hello again everybody. And Robin Lichetti. Howdy. Uh, you guys been surviving load shedding? Uh, barely. Uh, I was uh, supposed to buy a UPS this week. I was so happy about it. Don't need to burn petrol anymore. Um, and they sold out before I got there. Uh, they they gave me a quote and they're like, come back. And then I came back and they were sold out. So that was a that was a real kick in the nethers. Yeah. And the, the next the next branch of this company is uh, 60 kilometers away from my house. So that's fun. Road Hopefully trip. I can get that soon. No, absolutely not. Have you seen the cost of petrol? <laughs> and yourself, Robert, not. you had a good week? Uh, yeah, uh, all things considered, I'm lucky, one of the lucky few, I guess, that has access to a generator, so I haven't been too bad in that regard, obviously, knock on wood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, generator's been running overtime here as well. Uh, thanks, ESCOM. Uh, we got we actually got some good news about ESCOM later. Um, well, I mean, it's a good news story. It's not good news about load shedding or anything. Uh, but let's get into the news of the week. Uh, Clinton, God of War has proved incredibly popular. I'm very surprised as we'll get into. Uh, so, uh, against our predictions that God of War Ragnarok was going to be delayed, it's not delayed, it's coming out later this year, and there are several uh, different editions you can buy. And the most desirable of them are the Collector's Edition and the even more expensive Collector's Edition called the Yotnar Edition. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, but anyway. And we always knew these were coming to South Africa, but we didn't know when and we didn't know how much they would cost. The good news is that they became available this morning. The bad news is that they became unavailable shortly after this morning because they got sold out. So let me just run you guys through it quick. The collector's edition is 3,499 Rand and the Yotna edition is 4,499. And while you may say that's a lot of money because it damn well is a lot of money, uh, I was just thinking about the Doom Eternal uh, collector's edition, which came out in June 2019, you know, in the before times. And that, the cheapest um, way you could get that was 3,800, and that was discounted from 4,000. And I think these two are kind of comparable because the Collector's Edition and the Yotnar Edition of Ragnarok have a, I don't know if it's one-to-one scale, but it is a large um, replica of Mjolnir, you know, Thor's hammer, that's yeah. 16 inches. And I think that's close to one-to-one scale. And the Doom Eternal Collector's Edition had a wearable helmet that was one-to-one scale so i think they're comparable and if you're just looking at the collector's edition of god of war it's cheaper and i mean we're three years later after pandemic with insane inflation and the rand being even lower than it was then so i think the prices are actually pretty good here and i think a lot of people agreed with me or a lot of people just really wanted this because they are now all sold out um the main retailers that got stock was bt games um kudu raru and nexus all of them are sold out and I know they are not the only ones who sell these things. Uh, I'm sure you can find smaller chains or even single individual stores that might have stock. But I mean, when you want to buy something like a collector's edition, they are the main places you will go. And according to the email I got from BT Games, this isn't some kind of a, you know press email or anything. It's just a public newsletter. The um, Both versions sold out in less than an hour. So it's kind of crazy. Um, it, even though it's cheaper than the other collector's editions, it's still a lot of money to just drop out of nowhere. And you would need to drop it out of nowhere because we had no idea when these were becoming available in South Africa. So unfortunately, if you missed it, I, I really don't think there's going to be a restock of this. 
um, collector's editions or something in South Africa, and I think in many parts of the world where there's one launch, there's one stock allotment, and then it's gone. So I mean, it wouldn't be a collector's edition if just about anybody could get their hands on it, right? Well, to an extent, uh, <laughs> Raru just sent out an email now saying, "Hey, we have God of War, except no, you don't anymore." Uh, <laughs> so, well, how on brand for Raru? That's another thing. They haven't refunded me, and it's been almost a month. Flipping Raru. So yeah, that's God of War. It is sold out extremely fast. I think we are very much looking forward to playing it, all three of us, on this call. But did we talked about this collector's edition when the game was announced to be coming out. Were either of you considering buying this? Um, considering it costs more than I pay in rent, no. And you, Robin? Um, it was really cool. Had a lot of cool things in it, but uh, as Brendan alluded to, money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's this thing called a recession. I don't know how everybody managed to just have like four and a half yeah. thousand rand just laying around. Something I wanted to point out as well, now that we have the prices, is I think when we talked about this, I mentioned that Lego makes a a near one to one scale Thor's hammer. It's it's actually called Thor's hammer. It's not called Mjolnir, according to Lego. Um. They make that, and it is two thousand one hundred rand. So, this the the value of this is actually, if you compare it to that, is pretty good because for three thousand five hundred, you could have gotten the hammer and the game, and the game is going to cost like one thousand three hundred rand on its own. So, this was priced really well. I'm, you know, for the distributor who brought it in, um, and Kudu's their main store for that distributor. They they brought it in at a competitive price and. Yeah, the, the price combined with the fact that people just really love God of War, apparently. I knew people liked it, but I didn't know they liked it this much. Um, yeah, it, it flew off the shelves. I've never seen a collector's edition sell this fast in South Africa. Um, and I don't think it's a, a case of there was only a little bit of stock. I just think people are really looking forward to this one. So if you wanted it, I'm sorry. Um, you'll have to just do with the, uh, the video of the unboxing released by Sony. Fantastic. All right, Robin, you've got some really interesting news uh, that's hit the wires this morning about Telcom and MTN. You want to tell us some more? Yeah, that's right. So the, I guess, reports that came out this morning were that MTN were in discussions to purchase Telcom. Um, they kind of signaled their intent. Uh, I think it was in September of last year. Yeah. There was a Bloomberg report that went out that kind of said that uh, MTN were eyeing up a purchase, but kind of nothing uh, evolved from there, uh, at least nothing publicly. But it seems like some work has been done behind the scenes. And now both telecommunications giants have uh, kind of told their shareholders that this is what they're looking to do. And and unsurprisingly, um, the telecom share price rose rapidly on the back of the news. <laughs> um, almost 30%. Uh, Jeez. At, at the last time of uh, of. of uh, of reporting so yeah it, it looks like um the the shareholders are will be very happy to kind of see uh what happens at least from the telecom perspective from this deal um again we need to kind of temper expectations because um the both parties uh issued a statement to the jsc and they said that discussions are at an early stage and there is no certainty that the transaction will be consummated um we don't have uh, i guess an idea yet of what kind of price uh telcom wanted to sell uh to mtn to and we also the, the i guess there's also the kind of issue around the fact that telcom is partly state-owned mm. so you kind of have to unbundle that as well 
Um, there's also how they plan to purchase. MTN say they want to use a combination of stock and cash to kind of fund the purchase. Mm-hmm. So there are quite a few moving parts involved with this. Um, so it also has to kind of go to regulators. I'm sure the competition commission yeah. has something to say about the fact that the second and third largest telecoms operators in the country were essentially becoming one entity. Who, who's um, first? Sorry, Vodacom. not to derail. Vodacom oh, is, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they they suck. <laughs> Vodacom customer, yeah, long term Vodacom customer. I'm also, Sorry, I, I find them quite good. Anyway, Robin, carry on. Yeah, so basically, um, if they essentially have these two entities merging, um, it could uh, potentially kind of really shake up the local telecom space. I'm sure. I guess the general consumer isn't really too worried about uh, who is who their contract is with as long as the service is good. Yeah. But I guess from, I guess from a business perspective, it uh, potentially could be a real, I guess, paradigm shift as far as who controls what in South Africa. So at this very early stage, um, uh, they're in uh, communication with one another, they're in discussions. Um, we don't have a price yet, or at least uh, we are kind of see what happens with the share prices once that's kind of, kind of even out and kind of uh, just normalize a bit what uh, MTN are willing to pay. Um, they did release a statement. Uh, they told MoneyWeb, who we kind of followed as far as the reporting went, um, the transaction, if concluded, may have the material effect on the price of the company's securities. Accordingly, shareholders are advised to exercise caution when dealing in the company's securities until Ooh. a further announcement is made. So, cannot wait for that further announcement. Um, but it looks like both parties want to get this thing rolling. But it, like you said, it will all depend on what regulators might have to say on the whole deal. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that Sol C really wants this deal to go ahead because uh, that would make them the third biggest network in South Africa, which I'm sure they miss having. Yeah, I think Sol C have far more problems than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just, they'll become the third by default. Yes, Clinton. Mm. Do you guys think that they will change the name to MTTN? No. <sighs> Probably not because of the, the operations in all yeah. other parts of Africa. Yeah. It would be funny. I'll just fold it into the MTN group. What? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they won't change their name at all. Like, I'm, I would love to know, like, I'd love to sit down with MTN and talk about this deal when it's confirmed and all that sort of stuff. Because I'm sure that the, uh, the fiber aspect of telecoms business... Uh, is hugely attractive to MTN at the moment. Um, like we know that MTN has, uh, according to surveys, one of the best networks, if not the best network in South Africa. Um, and yeah, I think that combining that with telecoms, like just reach in terms of its fiber and fixed line network, um, I think that could be really good for MTN. But like we said, uh, I think that the Competition Commission is definitely going to have to say have something to say about this. Um, yeah, I'm sure also the, the Vodacom boardroom when they're kind of or <laughs> crap, what are we going to do now? Yeah, Shamil is kind of worried because uh, sure. although they also have a deal uh, with um, Civ H uh, to kind of create a new company called Infraco uh, where they would essentially, it would, would help Vodacom expand its fiber network or its fiber footprints fixed line and fiber, uh, rather, uh, really aggressively. So I don't know if this has, but I mean, yeah, buying telecom is, is quite a big deal. So I'm curious you, to see how this unfolds. Do you guys think that if this goes through, that could have an effect on um, ESCOM? Because every time there's load shedding, people are like, oh, please privatize ESCOM. And now if we see that a big partially owned government company can be merged or bought, do you think people say, please do this with ESCOM now? So I heard 
through the grapevine from reliable sources uh, who were at meetings with ministers um, that the word privatization has been thrown about. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's not a real serious thing until we hear it coming out of, like, a lawmaker's mouth, right? In yeah. Public. yeah. Um, I mean, the, that word is thrown around a lot. I think I feel like people think it's a magic bullet. Yeah, um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely it, not. It's definitely not. We'll still have to deal with ESCOM for a while still because uh, you can't just magically click your fingers and, oh, there's now private energy generation. It doesn't happen overnight. So... Yeah, uh, let's see how it unfolds. But this uh, Telcom MTN deal is definitely one to keep an eye on. Speaking of ESCOM, uh, this morning, the utility announced that it would be hosting in-person science fairs in the Northwest again. Uh, This is important because for the past two years, the ESCOM science expos have all been virtual. And uh, due to connectivity issues in the Northwest, uh, it means that some students just simply can't participate. But this year, they will be hosting four events. uh, And they've been at work for a while now to get these events underway. Um, Since the start of the year, they have been hosting workshops as well as research and innovation camps to kind of help students uh, with the process of starting a science project for a science fair, uh, which is really cool because I don't think this is something that's very common in South Africa. I know like in US media, it's always like, oh, the nerd kids are at the science fair or whatever. Uh, But I don't know if it's as big here in South Africa. So it's really cool to see that uh, ESCOM isn't just hosting the fair, but also helping students learn how to succeed in in this regard. Um, uh, so as I mentioned, there'll be four science fairs in the Northwest happening in July and August. Uh, they're happening uh, in various regions across the Northwest. Uh, the link in, or the link at the bottom of this po- podcast will uh, direct you to that with all the information. Um, and yeah, this is just really cool. I really like things where uh, companies invest in STEM education. Um, there was also a special mention made of empowering previously disadvantaged students uh, and and young girls to pursue STEM education, which I think is a really, really important thing to do, uh, given that there is such a dearth of uh, STEM skills in the country. Um, and yeah, just having more women and just a wider diversity of people in this field is is something that I think has been sorely lacking in the field of science. Do you guys yeah. want some first-hand experience with this? Because I yeah. did this in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was pretty fun. Uh, my memory's not the best now because I think it was in 2011 or 2012 that I did it. So it's um, more than a decade away now. Yeah. Um, I have good memories of it. Um, the school kind of did all the admin stuff, so I can't really speak to how difficult it is to you know sign up and to do all of that stuff but i can speak about what it's like um when you've done it so after you've done your project uh you go to the hall and you set it up it it is like brendan said like an american science fair there's a big hall and everybody sets up their stuff and then the judges come past and you explain it um and if i remember right after that judging we all had to leave the hall and then the judges kind of had free reign yeah and then you'd kind of come back and there would be like a mark sheet on your project saying, you know, this is what we judged you as. And then after that, there is um, not a prize giving, but after that, you then get a a certificate according to what you got judged. So um, there's bronze, silver and gold. um, And there's not, uh, if I remember again, there's a long time ago. um, 
there's a lot of bronze and then fewer silver and then fewer gold. I don't think there's one, you know, big winner from each of these events. I think if I if I remember correctly, it's kind of a knockout stage thing where yeah. you keep going to the events and then there's a big one um, overseas or um, that may or may not be attached to ESCOM. So, yeah, so there is um, just on that. Yes, Sorry, go just ahead. Brendan. So uh, students who kind of, quote unquote, win or are selected by a panel of judges, which includes experts, um, professors, and like I said, experts in the field, uh, and teachers as well. Sorry, that was the other one I wanted to mention. Uh, they will be selected for spots at the ESCOM International Science Fair, which is a virtual event that will be taking place uh, in October. Um, and students who are selected to participate in that event will also receive mentorship from experts from the, uni- the, uh, the Northwest University, uh, which I think that's also really cool. Yeah. Um, having somebody who's at a university level to help you with your, your project uh, might just give it a bit more edge or help you elaborate on it. You know, if you have a potato clock, I don't, I don't know, what, what are science experiments? You know, I, I don't I can know, tell I'm you sh- what I did. What did you do? Yeah. So I did a study into how video games affect your um, school grades. Oh. So it was basically, it, it was pretty easy to do it. I, um, I took. I think it was five subjects, so it was like STEM, so it was like science, um, regular math, and then a few more subjects. I think I also included the languages, uh, like um, English first language, Afrikaans second language, and then one more subject I can't remember. Maybe it was life orientation. And then people basically had to fill out a survey saying, do you play video games? And then what are your marks? And then the schools that I did do it with, I was given the anonymized data of their marks. So... I never got to see, you know, what everybody's marks were, but the school did provide me with that anonymous data. And then on their end, they paired up the answers from the survey with their marks, and then I turned that into findings. Okay. And what I thought made this project really cool is the way I, I displayed it. I made a, well, my dad and I, and my dad did most of the work, we made a giant Nintendo 3DS out of wood. So it was basically just two big wooden panels yeah and then my uncle who's a, a sign printer or a screen printer i don't know what the correct name is he made a giant sticker of the nintendo 3ds screen and then we in word i created all the findings and i made them look like game screens and then we printed that out and put it on the piece of wood oh, wow. and then it, it folded like a nintendo 3ds so i i think i still have that somewhere because i've been meaning to do something with the wood because wood is so expensive but yeah it was i just wanted to bring that up Less about me and more about that. It's a very fun time. Um, the one thing, I, aside from recommending that people take part in it, um, you should probably do it in a group. Back when I did it, you could do it uh, alone or with other people. I think it's more fun if you do it with other people. Yeah. Um, it's kind of lonely just <laughs> by myself. So, yeah, I um, first-person experience with it, mostly positive, and do it with a friend. And uh, I don't think they were offering that mentorship stuff back then when I did it. But I, it, again, it's been a long time. And yeah, I, I really recommend people do this. A lot of fun. Awesome. Right. Let's get on to the meat and potatoes of this Africast. And it's not good news. Uh, Uber, Uber, Uber. <sighs> Where do we begin? Uh, this week, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists published a trove of documents, 124,000 internal documents, emails, text messages, and memos that have been dubbed the Uber files uh, because all of those documents come from Uber. Uh, And there are some alarming allegations. Robin, do you want to kick us off? You covered the original story on Monday. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. So the Uber files, as they've been dubbed, uh, they kind of chronicle events from 2013 to 2017 at the company. Uh, that's important because uh, that time was when CEO uh, Travis Kalanick was kind of heading up things. Uh, we, I guess there's a lot of uh, I guess founders of tech companies are con Disgraced are former CEO of Uber. <laughs> I think. Yeah, <laughs> they almost almost seem to always follow the similar trajectory. So um, he has since left the company, and it's been handed over to a new CEO, uh, Dara Kosra Shahi. I'm uh, I'm pretty Kara sure. Shahi. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm butchering his surname <laughs> there, but uh, forgive me. Anyway, um, the actual report itself, um, there were quite a few uh, claims and allegations made as a result of it. Um, perhaps the most telling is the fact that uh, Uber was found to be illegally lobbying politicians and government officials in order to kind of ramp up the rollouts of the ride-sharing platform in new territories. Um, specifically, a report from The Guardian found that Uber tried to shore up support by discreetly courting prime ministers, presidents, billionaires, oligarchs, and media barons in order to almost uh, ensure that uh, their platform, Uber, had a really easy time and came to launch. Um, there was also, I guess, driven by Kalanick, a almost culture of kind of flouting the rules, uh, that disregarding uh, legality and regulation in different regions was just simply entrenched within the company culture that just suddenly did when you worked at Uber. Um, one of the executives who wasn't named, but who did kind of uh, voice their uh, opinion around this, essentially said that what we're doing is uh, effing illegal. illegal. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't think I'm allowed to swear on the podcast. No, um, no. <laughs> please, don't so, make me, please don't make me try and reverse it. <laughs> So that's one of the kind of one of the major things that came into light. Another thing is that uh, Uber was actually working, or actually they developed a kill switch. This essentially meant that if, for example, and it it was actually put into practice, uh, the company was being its headquarters in Netherlands was being raided by the police or some kind of government officials, and Travis Kalanick uh, emailed one of the engineers and said, "Hit the kill switch," which essentially means that all the internal systems company-wide will be inaccessible. And it just kind of speaks to the fact that Uber were quite happy to flout the rules, um, employ legal tactics, and essentially uh, give the middle finger to uh, governments and regulators that they were looking to operate in. Um, we also found out some really interesting stuff with regards to South Africa, not really interesting, but rather concerning elements about South Africa, which I'm sure you'll touch on shortly. Yeah. Um, but Uber did release a response uh, to the Uber files. Um, again, it was rather boilerplate-y, sure. but um, what they kind of framed it was uh, the fact that, that was, those were the mistakes that were made during 2013, 2017. Can I, um, sorry, can I just jump yeah. in here? I read it as, everybody knows that we messed up, guys. Why is this, <laughs> why is this news to you? We know that we messed up, and we're going to do better. Don't worry about it. That's how I read that statement. Yeah, it kind of smacks of like being a toxic relationship where you get mm -hmm. back together with your toxic ex. Like, I'll be better, don't, babe. Don't judge me about what happened in the past. Judge me about mm. what happens now, like moving forward. So their statement said that uh, there's been no shortage of reporting on Uber's mistakes prior to 2017. Thousands of stories have been published. Multiple books have been written. There's even been a TV series. <laughs> um, five years ago, those mistakes culminated in one of the most infamous reckonings in the history of corporate America. 
That reckoning led to an enormous amount of public scrutiny, a number of high-profile lawsuits, multiple government investigations, and the termination of several senior executives. Um, they kind of follow that up by saying that uh, we have not and will not make excuses for past behavior that is clearly not in line with our present values. Instead, we ask the public to judge us by what we've done over the last five years and what we will do in the years to come. Mm. And I think that kind of leads quite nicely into some of the stories that have since been published uh, now that the Uber files are out in the open. Yeah, so uh, we'll touch on the one about the 550 women in the US coming forward to sue Uber for sexual assault by drivers. Um, But I do just want to touch on the uh, allegations that were labeled about Uber in South Africa. Um, So... The Washington Post's Douglas McMillan um, actually wrote the story, and we'll have a link to the story that we link to where you can read this. And it recounts the story of an Uber driver whose name is Sean Cupido. Um, and essentially, it, it, it tells the tale of how Uber made decisions about its operations in South Africa, despite knowing that they would not go down well, particularly as regards cash trips in South Africa. So... Um, One of the things that Uber drivers usually tell me when I take an Uber is that they hate taking cash trips because it's it's kind of a worry that you have to carry cash around with you and people know that you are carrying cash around with you. Um, And one of the reasons is highlighted in the story where Cupido took a cash trip in the Western Cape uh, and was robbed. Uh, he was then taken to hospital where he fought for his life. And one of the things that really alarmed me was about the story was that um, despite Uber saying that they would support their drivers and help them, um, they, could, they, they, would, they refused to replace a broken pair of glasses that Capito had or that he broke during the attack, which I think just speaks to a wider – it speaks back to that culture where it's – it's just we can do whatever we want and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, there's several allegations that Uber um, kind of flouted the rules and just just didn't care. Sort of what the, the Uber file showed, but happening right here in our own country. Um, selling drivers on the idea that uh, they could make their own jobs and make their own hours and make a success for themselves. And then in, on the other side, just flooding the market with way more drivers than was needed, um, thereby creating this huge competition. Um, like, yeah, it, it's just really disturbing to read these allegations. And when we approached Uber Sub-Saharan Africa um, to comment on these allegations, uh, they refused to speak with press or media. Um, they told us that they were not giving interviews on Monday, um, that we could uh, send forward questions written questions that Uber would then answer. Um, Unfortunately, the questions that we did send through to Uber Sub-Saharan Africa weren't answered, and instead we were given uh, a response, and the response reads as this. Since our our South Africa launch in 2013, we have created economic opportunities for thousands of people in South Africa and currently have 20,000 drivers and delivery people earning through the Uber and Uber Eats apps. This is attributed to Franz Himstra, the general manager for Uber Sub-Saharan Africa. Safety is and always has been a top priority for us, and we have invested heavily over the years in technology to help keep drivers and riders safe. Many of these industry-leading safety features are now available in South Africa, including our in-app emergency button and strong rider verification measures. Um, And within this, Uber gave us a whole list of feature launches that have happened since 2013. And one of the things that they mentioned was that, uh, well, drivers have the the choice to, uh, to not take a cash trip. 
But I feel that that's such a, that statement is so divorced from reality because, as we've written in the past, Uber drivers are often really living hand to mouth. Um, if they are renting a vehicle, they will have to create hundreds of trips in a week, uh, or complete hundreds of trips in a week in order to pay that vehicle off. Um, that drivers are taking advantage of not just by riders but by Uber itself, and. There's just this disconnection between what is happening on the ground and the decisions that Uber makes. To give you just one so basic example, like it angers me that this is the case, but we've now had two massive petrol price increases and Uber's prices have not gone up. Now, as a rider, for me, that's great because it means that I could probably get a ride for cheaper in, within certain distances than if I had to use my own fuel. But for the drivers, that means that they are now more stressed. They don't have enough fuel to get around. And what happens when a driver runs out of fuel while they're on a trip? And it's it's just something that I feel that Uber doesn't, doesn't take into consideration with its local operations. And to give you even more of an example, this statement, this nothing statement from Franz Hemstra took two days to get to us. Then at the bottom of that email, there's a statement that says, please note that drivers operate as independent contractors. So please refrain from using terms such as work for Uber and referencing drivers as Uber drivers or our drivers and rather use drivers on the Uber platform or drivers that use the Uber app. I don't know about you guys, right? But if my boss had to say that about me, I would be quite angry. I mean, I don't want to get into more American stuff, but... In America, they have uh, states that have, uh, what's it called? Um, not work for hire. Um, there's a term that basically means your company always treats you as a a contract worker instead of a staff member. I think it's called, I can't remember, but that is very common wording in America. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that it's something that they've basically been getting away with overseas the other side of this is that uh uber sub-saharan africa tells us that it regularly engages with drivers through in-person and virtual roundtables um they told us that uh in 20 in the last year they have hosted 30 roundtables and hundreds of drivers have attended these sessions now as i point out in my story hundreds sounds good until you realize that they have twenty thousand drivers in south africa and a hundreds is is a drop in the ocean so, and the other side of this is how are drivers engaged through this? Are they invited through the app? Are drivers like selected once in a while? Like there's just, there's so many questions about this company's operations in South Africa. And it's now just asking us, trust us. Just trust us. When we now have allegations of drivers being taken advantage of by um, syndicates that are renting cars to them at exorbitant prices, Uber knows this is happening. Uber has yet to do anything about it. Now these 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 revelations that the company knew that cash trips would be a bad idea in South Africa and yet went ahead with it. And then Franz Himstra has the gall to not comment on that. Like, what is this, Uber? Like, th I'm this company makes me so agitated because Every time something happens in South Africa, they have to wait until head office in San Francisco or New York is awake before they can say anything. Now, that's not having a presence in the country. That just means you're operating here and all decisions must still come from head office. It's just so divorced yeah. from reality. And I don't understand how you can run a company like that. Clinton. Yeah, it's, it's like you said, it's 
it adds to that divorce between reality and what's um what they think's going on because yeah. do you really think an executive in San Francisco or New York has any inkling of an idea of what living in South Africa is like? Not a Absolutely chance. Absolutely no chance. And that's half because they're, they're millionaires who get paid ridiculous sums of money in America, but it's also because they are in America and they're not in South Africa. And uh-huh. again, I don't want to make this into us talking about why multinational corporations can be pretty bad, um, but it just it just adds to that um, that problem. It's a... Uh, not the best way to structure a company and uh, it's all we've got right now yeah um and then the next thing that grabbed headlines this week was uh, a report that uber is being sued by over 550 women in the u.s for sexual assault by drivers um now this is something that is unfortunately quite or was quite common in south africa a few years ago where Drivers for um, ride-sharing services, I don't just want to say Uber because there are many ride-sharing services and uh, drivers across the board were accused of this. Um, And yeah, it's just disturbing that this continues to happen and seeing it happen in the United States is is a kind of reminder that Uber's reach is everywhere, but that also means that the way people take advantage of this application um, has spread with that app, right? Um, and uh, Robin, do you just want to give us some more detail about the story? Yeah, so the, the lawsuit, like we said, as mentioned, uh, involves 550 women. Uh, the law firm that's handling this, uh, Slater, Slater, Shulman, uh, they're investigating a further 150 sexual assault cases and potentially adding that to the current 550. So um, the numbers involved in this lawsuit is, is going to grow. Um, at the time of writing, uh, Uber has provided a response, but I'm not too sure just how uh, the legal proceedings are going to be taking place. Um, I do want to add a bit of context uh, because Uber has released two U.S. safety reports um, mm-hmm. in recent years. Uh, the most recent one found that there were 998 sexual assault incidents in 2020, uh, and that's taken from... 3,824 cases that were reported. So if we look at that 3,824 number, um, sexual assault obviously covers a wide spectrum. So we don't know precisely the severity of those incidents. And for Uber to essentially only acknowledge uh, less than a third of that in one year alone, uh, when you kind of extrapolate that across however long Uber's been operating now, and however long these incidents have been occurring, not just in the US, but across the globe, it yeah. is really, really, really concerning. I'm not too sure how Uber can kind of um, v- almost like uh, validate what's been, what it's been doing. Um, they, their uh, response was, again, very bo- boilerplate uh, but they said that sexual assault is a horrific crime and we take every single report seriously. Uh, there is nothing more important than safety, which is why Uber has built new safety features, established survivor-centric policies, and been more transparent about serious incidents. While we can't comment on pending litigation, we will continue to keep safety at the heart of our work. And again, that that does very little to assist um, the what is it, three thousand eight hundred twenty-four cases in yeah. twenty twenty alone. So, um, yeah, and that's just in the US, right? That's correct. So we, I'm not even sure if they have safety reports outside of the US. And I just, 
Uh, I just didn't want to think about the actual numbers. If, for example, you looked at the South African safety report, what just the, the frequency of incidents. Um, I'm speaking anecdotally here, but I have two sister, two younger sisters. They're both yeah. adults, but I tell them, do not use Uber, do not use any ride-sharing app, yeah. uh, purely for the fact that um, I'm concerned about their safety. Uh, I'm, quite, I'm quite happy to say, call me, message me wherever you are, I will pick you up, don't worry about mm -hmm. that. Like, just rather be safe. That, that That's how much I have grown to dislike uber but uh, robin yeah. sorry i just want to ask something quick um this isn't a class action lawsuit is it uh it is a class action lawsuit ah, okay. but again uh it's only 550 members right now so it could yeah. go to more than that and then yeah. from there they'll they'll take it onto into the courts yeah usually like things like this where there is a class action they'll they'll release news of it and then they'll probably get more plaintiffs along the way yeah um, um but yeah i like I just want to go circle back to Robin's points um, because I mean, like I think we mentioned this. This is not a new problem for Uber. It's one that's now under the spotlight uh, given all this news about um, all the Uber files. Um, but this is something that has been rampant for some time now. I mean, we mentioned it's happened in South Africa. I think there was like in the before times, like 2018, round right about there, there was a spate of uh, complaints about sexual assault by drivers and things like drivers using contact information to get hold of women off it, it, just really bad stuff and it concerns me that this is still happening in the u.s because it speaks to once again that kind of divorce from uber in the u.s and uber in every other market it operates in um because i have always held the opinion that uber literally cuts its model from san francisco and paste it around the world. And as one of the executives said, who cared whether it was illegal or not? Um, and that's how they made their success. This, let's talk about agility and all these fun things, you know? So I think that this speaks to a wider endemic problem within Uber that as much as it's telling us, oh, look at what we've done over the last five years, um, but you still have sexual assaults happening. Did you not learn from your other markets? Or did you not learn from your other markets because you're not actually paying attention to what's happening there? Um, or they're just willfully ignoring it. I mean, that's the other possibility. We don't know. We're just speculating here. Um, but it's not a good look for a company. And I can't believe that Uber m puts out these statements like, oh, there's even a TV series about how terrible we were as an employer. That's not, a, that's not something to brag about, Dara. Oh, but they're not an employer, Brendan. They're a but they are an employer contractor. because I know, I know, I know. Are, I'm there just are saying. people who are employed by Uber. It's just if you are behind the wheel of a car, well, you know, then we've got to have a discussion about what you are and what you aren't. Um, so I think the thing I want to lead into now is: Are there going to be consequences for Uber from this? And do we foresee Uber being around ne this time next year? Robin, let, let's start with you. Um, so my short answer is there will be absolutely no fallout from this. Um, one, because the news cycle is so chaotic at the moment that mm -hmm. something worse will likely come up uh, from another tech company, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, but also, um, Uber is too, uh, we always use the term, like too big to fail. They are too big to fail at the moment. They are so deeply entrenched in South Africa. Um, people are heavily reliant, not just on the ride sharing, but also Uber Eats. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's a real issue with just people that talk about Uber or I remember, I guess, in that kind of 2013 to 2017 period, 
every single startup that you spoke to or every single event <laughs> where you're kind of talking about what trends in the industry, it was always like, you want to be the Uber of X, Y, Z. Like yeah, yeah. you have to, you have to try and disrupt something. And I think that 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 whole messaging has gotten so ingrained in people's thinking about Uber that they've totally forgotten about all the bad aspects. Uh, and quite frankly, like you mentioned at uh, during your experience, um, although the price of petrol has gone up, the price of Uber rides has pretty much stayed the same. Yeah, and. It sucks to say this, but that's all people really care about. They don't care about the the, the drivers. Yeah. Uh, only kind of instance they really worry about is the fact that um, there are all these sexual assaults that are happening, and even that, I'm not even sure anything can actually be done about it. Because again, Uber has has done a great job of dissing itself in a way that they are not uh, complicit in what's happening. So, yeah, yeah there will definitely be. Um, I'm sure there'll be a few. Uh, people that will remove the app from their phones in the coming weeks. But by this time next year, I'm sure everything will be back to normal at Uber. Yourself, Clinton? Yeah, I mean, you answered your own question earlier in this podcast when you were talking about their own statement saying how bad they supposedly used to be. If Uber is still around after all of that stuff, which it claims is even worse, why will this situation be any different? Yeah. Um like Robin said, the public will stop caring when there's a new big thing in the news. And then in the courts behind closed doors where we can't see anything, uh, they'll probably just pay a settlement. And the settlement will be a tiny percentage of their income. Yeah. And then things will go back to normal. And they'll say, oh, we, you know, the court didn't find us guilty. Um, so we can't be held to account. Uh, cause, yeah, because he said it Everybody must forgive us. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, it, it's exactly they. Yeah, it's been answered in this podcast. They've already done stuff like this and maybe even worse and maybe stuff we don't even know about and nothing happened. I that mean, it, CEO, was, it was bad enough to make a series about it. No, well, Netflix will give you money to make anything. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, nothing's going to happen. Um, and I'll pause on to you, Brendan, but I do want to talk before we, um, before we sign off. I do want to talk about Uber Eats because I don't think we've talked about it a lot in this. I just want to touch on it before we go off. So what do you think about your own question, Brendan, before we so, talk about Uber Eats? So I would really like to say that this will be the uh, the bullet that kills Uber, but I'm not dumb. Uh, I know that big tech gets away with way shadier stuff. I mean, <laughs> Cambridge Analytica, that scandal should have killed Facebook, and it didn't. Just well, it, it did. Now it's meta. Yeah, okay, <laughs> fair. But, I mean, they paid a laughably small fine, um, and everybody just kind of forgot. Like, when you bring it up nowadays, people are like, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, there was a Netflix series about it, and there was a whole bunch of stuff, and people just ended up not caring. And I think that's the problem with big tech, is that these companies are so big and so ingrained in our everyday lives that we don't want them to fail. As terrible as they are, we don't want them to fail. I mean, like, to give you an, uh, an example in terms of gaming, like, Blizzard, in the, its executive team, is dastardly. Like, there have been some terrible things that have uh, that have been made public from within that company. And yet, they continue to be supported. Players of World of Warcraft keep playing their monthly, paying their monthly subscription. Like... I feel like we've reached a point where big tech companies have become so entrenched in our lives. And if you think that they're not, I want you to switch off your phone for 24 hours 
and be okay with that. Now, I'm not saying like go away on like vacation, like camping where there's no signal, whatever. I mean, like during your workday, switch off your phone. Don't use Google. Just use your Outlook email and stuff. But even then, you're using a big tech company stuff. I don't think we want them to fail because we need them. The drivers on Uber need the Uber platform <clears throat> because they need to be able to <clears throat> get rides or, or to find riders. Riders need the Uber platform because they need to be able to find some a driver. Like we and this hugely symbiotic relationship that we've created, <clears throat> I think is has ultimately come to haunt us. And I know a lot of people will look at this and go, oh, but we saw this coming years ago. Why didn't the rest of you? Well, because not all of us are market analysts. And I think we're just, reached... we're just yeah. members of the public. We're not those executives and government officials who have been taken to fancy dinners who have decided the laws. Yeah. It's, it, I don't want to say it's all their fault, but it probably is because they got wined and dined and they made laws that allowed Uber to do this. Or yeah. Uber just ignored the laws as also. And I think it's it's really sad that we've we've reached this place where like anybody can do anything terrible. But if it's a big tech company, like they almost immune just because they have so much power. And I mean, even if a lawmaker does try to hold them to count accounts, I mean, could you imagine being a senator or on the Supreme Court and having a Gmail account with some questionable stuff in it? And Google comes knocking and says, you're a Gmail user, aren't you? Yeah, all the yeah, all the Republicans will just vote against it because they don't have a, they're not humans. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think that Uber is is not going to fail as much as I would like to see a bit of a reckoning from this. I'm also cynical enough to understand that uh, that sort of thing doesn't happen. Clinton, you wanted to talk about Uber Eats. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about Uber Eats real quick because when we decided on the topic of this podcast, I was thinking, oh, you know what? I'm happy I haven't taken an Uber trip in many years, so I'm not supporting this company. Oh, yeah, I, I've ordered from Uber Eats quite a lot over the mm -hmm. pandemic. So I just want to mention that, Robin and uh, Brendan, because you've covered this on separate states. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the reports about all this horrible stuff that's been going on has been about regular Uber, which mm -hmm. is trips for people. Has there been a lot of mention of Uber Eats? So as far as the Uber files are concerned, I think it's only Uber Ride. Okay. And uh, Brendan, in those like boilerplate responses, um, did they mention Uber Eats yeah. at all? So they mentioned Uber Eats because they kind of they they view the two parts of the company together. In some instances, in other instances, they don't. Um, like sometimes they will report, oh, we have twenty thousand. Like so, for instance, they say twenty thousand drivers and delivery people earning through Uber Eats and Uber. Yeah. Um, but it's very hard to kind of get a gauge on what sentiments is like across the brand because, I mean, you don't really talk to your delivery driver, you know, whereas with in, when you're in an Uber uh, with somebody, nine times out of ten, the, the person will try and talk to you. And whether you like it or not, sometimes you just have a conversation. Um, and like for me in my experience, because I've been taking a lot of Ubers recently, like drivers are fed up. And I get the feeling that I get the feeling that the same is uh, true for the Uber Eats drivers because, I mean, they earn far less than the uh, the Uber like cab drivers, um, and I mean, like dropping off food for people, especially people who are hangry, is never a good experience. Um, and yeah, it's I don't know. I feel like 
what Uber needs to do is look at the whole company as a whole. Uh, but the focus seems to be very much on the, the driver side um, and apply things to both, right? Like if you're going to implement increases for drivers, you've got to do it for both your um, your delivery drivers and then the cab drivers. Like, yeah, yeah I don't know. It, it's just, I feel like we lump the two together. Even Uber does that very often. But I think that there might be different sentiments across the different drivers, you know? Yeah. I also wanted to bring it up because of petrol, um, because a bike obviously uses a fraction of yeah. what a um, a car does. And I'm really not a bike person. I'm not bringing this point up to say, oh, bikes are fantastic. I I would never get on a bike. Um, I just think it's really interesting because aside from the, the petrol stuff, you don't interact, like you said, when in the driver and the person who's, you know, they're dropping their customer. They're not really interacting. So there isn't, an opportunity for bad things to happen. I'm trying to skirt around this. I'm sure there is opportunities. Oh, well, so, okay, so, not so, as much. so in 2018, um, when all these uh, allegations of assault by drivers were coming through, uh, these included delivery drivers, which is rather scary because like they're coming to your house, they definitely know it's your house because, I mean, if you, I don't know about you guys, but I go out in like my slippers and pajamas to go and get Uber. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're quite vulnerable. Yeah. So um, they definitely were uh, Uber Eats delivery people who were included in those allegations. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that's the other side of this that Uber needs to really consider, especially in areas like South Africa, is like somebody dropping you right at your house. I mean, I've never thought about it, but there's a lot of strangers you know where I live now. I, uh, uh, yeah. it, it's very interesting because if, I think if Uber st started off as a South African company or was called something else or whatever. Mm. And they said, listen, the, our company is going to send a cab driver or a food delivery driver right to your house. I don't think that would have taken off in South Africa yeah. because of how security conscious we are and yeah. for good reason because there's such high crime stats. So I've just been thinking about it now while we've been talking. If Uber didn't set the precedent and was so successful overseas, then I don't think it ever would have taken off in a country like South Africa. Um yeah, I just don't think South Africans would have been for it. And I remember for a long time, people were like, oh, when's Uber coming to South Africa? When's yeah. Uber coming to South Africa? So it's just very interesting to think of now retrospectively that it's just become normal. You are, you know, your parents said, be careful of strangers online. Yeah. And now you use your phone to bring a stranger right to your house. Yeah. Uh, just on that point that you said, Clinton, about if Uber was South like designed for the South African market, I think the app would look wildly different. Um, not just in terms of like its UI design, but like in terms of how it functioned, you know, like an option to be dropped off like two houses away from your place, you know, yeah. or things like um, being able to tip more than the price of the, the ride, Uber. Let me decide how much I want to tip. Maybe my driver had the best conversation I've had in two weeks. Like, and I want to yeah. tip him a hundred bucks for, for the great conversation, but I was only a 50 rand uber trip i mean like let me decide it's my it's my money i can do what i want with it um but yeah uh i don't think this will be the last we hear of uber though and the uber files yeah. um uh, things like this have a habit of once people start studying them there's uh there's some more revelations that are found once interviews are given people like jump on little things and yeah so i fully expect this to uh continue 
generating some form of news. Uh, whether it's in the headlines over the next few weeks remains to be seen. But yeah, I don't foresee this being the last time we hear about the dastardly things Uber has done, especially in other markets. Um, but yeah, does anybody have anything that else they want to add? Robin? My only, I guess, not advice, but my, I guess my parting words are don't separate the technology from the company. Yeah. They are one in the same when you're thinking about any of these big tech companies. Uh, the technology is great and it's really useful and you highly dependent on it, but don't ever separate it from their practices and their behavior and what they allow to happen on their platforms. Yeah. Clinton? Uh, just consider using some of the other services for both uh, ride sharing and food delivery. There are competitors in South Africa. There are competitors that are entirely South African. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying them being local makes them better or they understand the market better. I just do want to say they are South African. And again, we don't know if they if they are a terrible place to work. But I do just want to say there are alternatives out there. Yeah. If you are a staunch Uber user for whatever reason, um, just consider them. You know, check them out. It won't hurt. If you are so ingrained in the ecosystem that are, you are using Uber or Uber Eats so often, it's not going to hurt you to try out the competitor once or twice. And maybe you try it out and the competitors are so much worse or they price so much worse that you go back to Uber or Uber Eats. Sure. Okay. I'm not going to tell you your experience is wrong or anything, but just try them out. What's it? The worst thing that can happen is that your one delivery or your one trip isn't as good. And you go back to what you know. And the best thing that can happen is that you use them instead going forward. So just try out the competitors. Yeah. Um, I also have a, a, a kind of call to big firms in South Africa that do deliveries. Um, so, like, for instance, uh, Check Checker 6060 doesn't do – well, it does handle a lot of its own deliveries, but it outsources a lot of those deliveries to another company. And – I want to appeal to companies like that in South Africa that do deliveries and have that sort of that sort of ecosystem building up. I want you to consider a ride sharing application, right? You got like Checkers, Shoprite Group. You got you guys have lots of money, right? You wanted to build a, like a, some virtual store thing a couple of months ago. It was really silly. It was a stupid waste of money. Don't do that. Instead, start a ride sharing service, right? And I guarantee you that people will move away from Uber and use your your application because you understand the market. Like Clinton was afraid to say that the local companies don't understand the local market or that local companies understand the local market and that makes them better. I think that it is a defining factor in companies being successful here is understanding this market because Africa, the African continent is so diverse and different that from one town to another, the the way things are done is different so a company that's based in south africa that understands our market and how varied and diverse our needs are i think could absolutely trounce uber and bolt so if you're a big company right i know we're, we're, we're not the biggest podcast in south africa but if you're a big company please consider it right Consider investing in something like this. There is a massive demand for it. And if you can lure drivers away from a company that's sitting thousands of kilometers away onto something that's local, you, you could make huge amounts of money. 
like, and look at what Diddy did, right? So Diddy is no longer in South Africa, but they had such a clever model. So what you could do with Diddy is you could wait for a driver within your area to become available, or you could elect to pay more and a driver from outside your area would travel to you. However, that ride would then start when that driver starts making their way to you. And that kind of offsets the petrol cost, but it's an elective cost, right? I'm in a rush because I woke up late for my flight. Now I'm, I need to wait 10 minutes for a drive in my area, or I can pay more. I think that's a great, a great, great model. Unfortunately, it didn't survive here. I'm not 100% sure why, but yeah. Um, so yeah, please, if you're in South Africa and you have the funding and the capability to launch a ride-sharing platform, consider it. Brendan, I thought you meant Peter Lee. It's like, what P. is Diddy. Brendan talking? Yeah, when you P. said Diddy. Oh, my goodness. What is Brendan talking? Is he high? No, no I'm he... old. So if I'm talking about P. Diddy, I will actually say Puff Daddy. Oh, yeah. Oh, this guy. <laughs> right. But I think that's going to wrap it up from us for this week. Uber, be better, please. Like, seriously, be better. Uh, and everybody else, uh, stay awesome. Uh, from myself, Brendan Lott, cheerio from Clizomatos. Bye. And from Robin Lichetti. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Cheers. Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.